Some informal studies have suggested that Titanic, Jesus Christ, and the American Civil War were the three most written about subjects of the 20th century. Welcome to Journalism History, a podcast that rips out the pages of your history books to re-examine the stories you thought you knew and the ones you were never told. I'm Terry Finneman, and I research media coverage of women in politics. And I'm Nick Hershon, and I research the history of New York sports media. And I'm Ken Ward, and I research the journalism history of the Great Plains and Rocky Mountains. And together, we are professional media historians guiding you through our own drafts of history. This episode is sponsored by ship historian Tim Yoder. Transcripts of the show are available at journalism-history.org podcast. The Titanic. It's one of the most famous events in history and a story that people think they know. On April 15, 1912, the ship that claimed to be unsinkable became one of the world's most famous tragedies after hitting an iceberg. The blockbuster movie starring Leonardo DiCaprio and Kate Winslet was the first film to reach a billion dollars, illuminating the continuing public fascination with the crisis nearly a century later. But there's so much more to the story. Our episode today explores what happened before and after the sailing and sinking of the ship and how Titanic became a pivotal moment in public relations and journalism history. Our first guest is Tim Zankis of the University of Pittsburgh, who will discuss his research, Titanic and Public Relations, a case study. We then visit with Ron Rogers at the University of Florida to discuss his study, A Strange Absence of News, The Titanic, The Times, Checkbook Journalism, and the Inquiry into the Public's Right to Know. Tim, welcome to the show. So we're talking about Titanic today and your research on it. And in your study, you note, despite the fact that the sinking of the luxury liner on April 15th, 1912, is the most examined events of the 20th century, the disaster's place in the history and evolution of public relations has gone largely undocumented. So why do you think it's important to study the public relations aspect of Titanic? Uh, thank you. Well, Titanic is positioned in a in a really vital spot in the history of public relations. Um, looking before Titanic, you have really the rise of big business. These companies like Standard Oil or um, the, the railroads that really had the communication needs of small nations or maybe even large nations. Um, then in, in, in relation to that, you had the muckrakers who were um, um, throwing barbs and demanding progressive reforms. You have the rise of, of a new and different kind of media along with the literate class. And then right before uh, World War I, where notions of propaganda, and to use Edward Bernays' term, impropaganda, kick in, right before that you have this massive consumer product and service that has multiple internal and external publics, many different kinds uh, of messages that need to be articulated to various uh, publics. Um, and then, of course, it's, it's a disaster. So um, it not only becomes a piece of sort of business public relations, but when the Titanic sank, um, a metaphorical Titanic rose up and still lives with us as uh, an image-making machine. So it's a complicated 
phenomenon. Uh, you had said that, you know, that I had said that it was among, and it is among the most um, discussed phenomenons of the 20th century. Um, some informal studies have suggested that Titanic, Jesus Christ, and the American Civil War were the three most written about subjects of the 20th century. Um, so I, I think I think I think that's why, uh, you know, it is it, it's, it's a big part of the 20th century. It's an image making phenomenon that is still making images for us. And um, uh, and it's there as a, a business example of so many things. So let's talk about the White Star Line in particular, which was the corporate owner of the ship. You write that Titanic itself was conceived as a public relations device. So give us some of the context about why it was needed as a public relations device for this company. Okay. Uh, Well, the American entrepreneur J.P. Morgan had acquired White Star Line um, in 1902. Within a few years, it was clear that that market was tightening. Um, It's uh, White Star's rival, Cunard. Uh, had these faster ships, the Lusitania, the Mauritania, um, and and uh, White Star was being eclipsed. So J. Bruce Ismay, White Star's managing director, got together with the bigwigs and decided to reposition and rebrand White Star and create a line of ships um, that would uh, not use speed as its um, brand, but um, its scale and sumptuousness. And um, uh, that it would be the most elegant passage, um, you know, possible. So, um, you know, and, and even their names, you know, um, the names were derived from classical mythology. This was going to be the wonder of the age, demigods. Um, White Star was never good at or never cared really about um, the sort of primitive public relations that Cunard even did. Uh, but they changed their mind for um, these this special class of ships. Uh, you know, for, for now, like when uh, when when Titanic was launched before it was fitted out, this huge celebration, this huge party. Uh, um, J.P. Morgan showed up. Um, deck plans were printed out. Big posters, uh, postcards, uh, much more what we would call publicity in public relations. Um, that, that never happened. That never happened before. Even in New York and the White Star Line, they hired their first publicity person, um, David Lindsay, um, who would have a special job, in, you know, eventually um, when Titanic didn't arrive in New York. So um, uh, the whole idea of this was to rebrand, reposition, and get. Uh, publicity for White Star Line in the face of uh, Cunard, who was doing uh, better than um, J.P. Morgan's uh, White Star. The basic facts of Titanic are widely known. At 11.40 p.m. April 14th, the ship struck an iceberg. The first distress call went out at 12.15 a.m. At 2.20 a.m., the ship broke in two. And it was 4.10 a.m. before the Carpathia arrived to help survivors. Overall, 706 people survived, and 1,517 people died. But what most people don't know is what was happening elsewhere. So, first off, tell us about 21-year-old David Sarnoff and the unusual story of his breaking the Titanic news from a New York department store. This is another interesting piece of public relations. Uh, The Wanamaker department store had installed 
um, a commercial wireless, a commercial radio station atop its stores in New York and Philadelphia. It was a PR device. It was, look at how interesting this is. We can um, we can talk to people around the world with Morse code. And, and uh, was it was a fun thing. 21-year-old David Sarnoff, who would go on to have a legendary career in broadcasting, happens to be working. Now, um, he turns this, as others do as well, into you know this hagiography of because he became such a big deal. So we get the story of and for three days and three nights, Sarnoff labored at the you know at the at, at his wireless and um, and I'm well, I'm sure he did. But his actual connection to the complicated crisis communication that goes on, I don't think has ever been completely or satisfactorily. Um, uh, articulated. And yet, I mean, he's clearly a big deal and clearly involved. He hears this um, over the wires. Um, he, he's 21 years old. Titanic is, is 1,400 miles away. And he hears um, SS Titanic ran into icebergs sinking fast. Sarnoff um, alerts the media. Now, keep in mind that the, um, the wireless operators on Titanic, uh, Bride and um, uh, Phillips, and, uh, and the guy on uh, the Carpathia and Sarnoff, they all work for the Marconi company. They don't work for the ship. It, it, all of that, that is so primitive at the time. Nobody knows what's really, um, w- w- what this means. In fact, in the org chart of the Titanic, the, uh, the wireless operators are in with the pastry chefs. And the, you know, they're not, it's not, a, it's not, and they're taking all kind of, what we would consider inconsequential messages. It's people saying, I'll meet you on the pier or what's happening with you. I mean, it was just social things. Um, Sarnoff though begins to um, tell the world uh, what's going on. And he takes control of the story in a way that um, the white star never did. I mean, uh, talk about the origins of crisis communications. It's, it's not even the origins that it's, uh, way, way back, we have to get to the origins. Uh, unbelievably, White Star didn't have its own wireless. So they're getting information, presumably from Sarnoff as well, but to get the, and they're getting it from the media when they can, but they have to wait until um, other uh, ships like the Olympic, which had the most powerful wireless at the time on the sea. When uh, the Olympic people would would hear something, they would send a telegram to Montreal. Montreal would then uh, call a Western Union station and into New York, and then a guy on a bicycle would take it down to the White Star's office on on Broadway. I mean, it was ridiculous. So um, the the Marconi employees suddenly are controlling really completely the story uh, right then. And Sarnos at, at the at the head of it, and um, that's the way it was. That wasn't. Uh, that's the primitive nature of what's going on at the time. It isn't like White Star screwed that up. Um, no one knew any better. 
Wow, that was fascinating. Uh, yeah, let's keep let's keep delving into this. So we have this brewing major communication crisis, and Philip A. S. Franklin is in charge of the New York office for the White Star Line, and ended up essentially as head of public relations for one of the worst disasters in history. Uh, one of his first blunders was trying to talk the Associated Press out of running a story. Uh, tell us more about how he tried to control the public relations of this disaster. Well, I think I'm in a I'm in a small I'm, a, I'm in a small boat. I feel sorry for Franklin. Um, uh, some people um, believe, including I, I remember I talked to Charles Hawes, who's one of the who was one of the world's leading experts on Titanic, and he thinks that Franklin was just lying and you know just you know I I don't I don't really think so. Um, you know, to say that they were unprepared isn't even uh, fair. It, it isn't like they could have prepared. It's it, it's like asking us now. Well, we are kind of. I think we we as a culture are probably more prepared for aliens landing and what would we do and how would we do it because of what begins with the Titanic and then moves through the 20th century as uh, crisis communication theory evolves. It was nothing then. So there's Franklin. He's he he's awoken uh, in the middle of the night by the AP and he says, "I don't know what's going on. Can you hold the story?" They said, "It's already gone out." What's happening? And then begins this mad chaos. Um, I mean, J.P. Morgan's in Europe, so he's no good. Not that he, not that the CEO would be involved in this at this point anyway. Uh, J. Bruce Ismay is on the Carpathia, um, you know, and an, another. I mean, he's the evil guy who say who who had the uh, audacity to live, and he did, um, and he's. Um, a mess. Um, uh, he's in the captain's cabin on the Carpathia, um, experiencing, uh, I think, a nervous breakdown. Um, so, who's in charge? All the stuff that we know about crisis communication really comes decades later. I mean, if you look at it, I mean, I think it's. I mean, a, a lot of people may argue with me. I think modern crisis communications really exists with things in the eighties. It's. it's it's Three Mile Island. It's, it's Tylenol. It's the Pepsi syringe thing. It's it's all of that stuff. And people say, "Wow, you know, um, you, you need to have a, a single spokesman. You need to have an articulated plan ahead of time. You need to identify a team. You need to, you know, uh, only have one person." All that stuff is decades later. So Franklin is trying to get all kind of information. He's out of his mind. Um, the, the whole the, the heartbreaking thing with the train. Did he actually? contact the, um, the, 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 um, the relatives of the passengers and say, everybody's fine. And we're, we've rented a train or we've chartered a train. We're going to take you so you can meet them when he knew they were dead. I mean, I can't believe that. And maybe that makes me naive, but I think that he actually did put a couple of messages together uh, um, that were garbled at the time. And can we even imagine the panic all these people are under? It's unimaginable. Um, I mean, I, I, if we had time, we could read some of his statements. But you know, I, I, I believe him. Uh, I believe he was telling the truth. And again, I'm probably in a small boat there. I don't think he uh, um, actually lied, but um, he was heartbroken. And he's the one who says that we thought it was unsinkable. Um, all the other collateral material that came before that I have found, and I looked, um, said it was practically unsinkable. Um, there was always that out. There was always that. It's it's Franklin who, uh, during the press availability sessions, 
says, I thought it was unsinkable. And, and something begins there. So um, it's, it's complicated. And I, I feel sorry for Franklin. Yeah. Do you have a couple of his statements available? Okay. Yes. Um, okay. Here, here he is. Um, okay. Um, they're asking him what's going on. And he says, we have heard nothing directly from Captain Smith himself, the captain who is clearly dead by now. Um, we are not sending any orders from here. He has his hands full without being bothered with orders. We attribute the failure to hear from him to the fact that the wireless apparatus is disabled. We place absolute confidence in the, in the Titanic. We believe the boat is unsinkable. And although she may have been struck at the bow, we have and have settled in the water, we know that she would remain on the surface and on and on. Um, when it's clear that that so many people are dead and 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 the ship is um, in the bottom of the, of the ocean, when he got the telegram, he says, it's horrible. Um, immediately after that telegram was received by Franklin, he goes out and, uh, and, and tells the media that the ship has sunk. And, um, and they don't even listen to his statement. Everybody runs out. By the end of the day, Franklin is weeping in public. And he said, I thought her unsinkable, and I based my opinion on the best expert advice. I don't understand it. I believe him. Wow. So we have now the Titanic survivors finally arriving in New York. So what did Franklin do once they arrived? Uh, this, is, this is the most interesting thing to me. Uh, Franklin immediately boards uh, – well, meanwhile, um, Ismay is sending – um, uh, telegrams to Franklin and uh, in code and with his name spelled uh, his last name spelled backwards. So we, you know, this didn't take much to figure out, but um, he immediately boards the Carpathia and there is a two hour meeting um, with Ismay and Franklin and the ship doctor, because I think Ismay was on the verge of going over the edge and who could blame him. Uh, there's no record as to what was going on in that meeting. If there's anything about the Titanic I would like to know, it's I would love to have a recording of that meeting. Um, then the, the, the passengers start to come off, and, and, uh, and they start telling their story. Actually, they send out um, a declaration of Titanic independence, kind of, that's, that's actually sort of interesting. And um, I mean, everybody starts telling the story, and I have a, 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 a quick personal thing I'd like to add when I get done here. But um, when, they, when before they get off, they issue, they realize that wow, um, we are. I don't think they are, are. I don't think they would have articulated this um, wholly, but they certainly felt that the world that they were going to land in was now different than the world they left in uh, Southampton. And they write, "We the undersigned." surviving passengers from the steamship Titanic in order to forestall any sensational or exaggerated statements, deem it is our duty to give the press a statement of facts which have come to our knowledge and which we believe to be true. And they begin to sort of tell their story um, uh, in a way, and then they fan out and begin telling them really for the next 80 years. Um, uh, it's 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 a remarkable thing, um, and everyone becomes a new kind of celebrity. Um, it's for the rest of their lives. Anyone who had anything to do with the Titanic suddenly, if you were there, 
it, this isn't like the, it's like the 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 the, the precious items from Tutankhamun's tomb. This is like a fork from the Titanic is now imbibed with myth and is like, oh, it's a fork. It's like, okay, um, it's, it is something different. The alchemy of, of, of publicity is, is sort of changing the nature of things. I was at a conference in 2000 on the mythology of the Titanic at Southampton. So it was 20 year, 21 years ago, um, 21 years ago this summer. And um, I happily got to speak to the last surviving person at, at, on the Titanic, um, Melvina Dean. Charming lady. She was a baby. But for the rest of her life, she's just telling her story um, from what she heard from her mother. She was uh, a, a very small child. And, and at, this, at the cocktail party before the formal academic conference where I talked about this stuff, public relations and Titanic, a flurry hit the room. And in walked a guy, and someone said to me, and he was an old man, and someone said to me without a hint of irony, oh, it's the fetus. And oh. I said, what? And, and they said, he was a fetus on the Titanic. Oh, wow. No one thought this was weird or funny or odd or ironic or too much. And... One of my regrets is I was so astonished that this guy had achieved his lifelong fame before he was actually born <laughs> by being a baby in his mother's womb, uh, a fetus in his mother's womb at the time. I, I was so astonished. I continued talking to Melvina Dean and, alas, um, missed my opportunity to speak to the fetus, uh, wow. which I which I regret, but that's the extent to which this event um, um, uh, has its uh, its image making potential. It's still going on. Movies, Broadway shows, everything um, still fighting now. Speaking of um, the what are they the um, the, the wireless people? Uh, the wireless. The last I heard, the wireless is still hanging, and there's argument. We should we go in and get it? We you know, we could send in a robot and bring out the the wireless equipment, but for some people, it's still a grave, um, and the complications around that. So we the Titanic as a metaphor uh, will always be with us. It will not go away. It will not dare I say sink um, from ship of state to um, um, is it a is it a, a a parable about feminism? Is um, uh, votes for women, but votes for women should 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 they have gotten in in first since they wanted the vote? It's a class story. It's a it's it's a prelude to the war. Um, it's a technological warning. Um, we have the next war will clearly be fought digitally. Um, that is a Titanic metaphor as well. We see it everywhere. So um, uh, as an image making, as a PR device, both from business and then as a cultural uh, PR uh, element, um, it's hard to beat. It's a good one. Yeah. So what do you think are the overall lessons for public relations and crisis communication that can be taken away from Titanic? Well, I th um, as I said, I, I, I think they, they are acting in a world in which there is no theory yet. It was unimaginable that this would happen um, on such a scale and so publicly. So, uh, I mean, the lessons are 
we've got Titanic, we've got the war, but really modern crisis communications doesn't evolve much until uh, with its legal and ethical guardrails, I think until the 1980s, because they did everything wrong. And not that it was even wrong. There was no context, no theory in which to judge what they were doing. Um, so, I mean, again, maybe I'm being naive here. I don't blame them. Uh, you know, was Ismay ridiculous at times? Yes. Um, well, was Franklin naive? Of course. Uh, where was J.P. Morgan? They had no plan. They had no idea that, that anything like this could happen. Um, they didn't even have the wireless. So we have Marconi employees telling their story, coordinating nearly everything out of their control. Um, and, and, and people acting with, without a plan, without something to look at while the adrenaline is squirting out of your ears, um, people are going to act. I don't think they act as evil. Um, they act because they're frightened. So you have um, Ismay um, uh, telegraphing um, uh, Franklin and saying, hey, get the sea driven, get one of these ships. We want to go immediately back to, 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 to England because he was afraid. Does that mean he was evil and didn't want to face? He didn't think there was going to be a commission immediately, which there was. He didn't think there was going to be a hearing right away. Uh, and there was. He was scared and he wanted to go home. Um, they immediately quit paying the, 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 the crew that survived. Again, that was horrible. I mean, everybody's in New York with no hotel money, with no money for food, and you, you quit paying them. So, I mean, but nobody had a plan. Nobody could look and say, oh, I, I'm scared. Uh, I don't know what I'm doing. But, oh, I've got a crisis plan here. I'm going to call a team. Oh, I'm going to have one person talk to the media. Oh, I'm going to do this, this, this. I mean, n none of that was there. So, And that wouldn't be there for quite for decades following the Titanic. So, you know, the lessons are, okay, let's start there and see what they did and then build up. Let's get to Three Mile Island and see what happens. Let's get to, you know, um, uh, some of the disasters in the 80s. Let's get to uh, the Exxon Valdez. And, and, and then now we're, be, we're beginning to develop theory and we kind of know what to do in the shadow of those catastrophes. Well, this has been absolutely wonderful. This has just been fascinating. So thank you so much for joining us today. Well, thank you for asking. So we just got done talking about the immediate aftermath of the Titanic from a public relations perspective. We're now going to examine the journalism perspective. We're now joined by Ron Rogers to discuss his article, A Strange Absence of News, The Titanic, The Times, Checkbook Journalism, and the Inquiry into the Public's Right to Know. So we're focusing today on the story of Harold Bride, who was the surviving Titanic wireless operator. Tell us more on who he was and why he in particular became such a newsworthy figure. Well, he was he was 22 years old. He was um, a, a junior wire, wireless officer uh, aboard the Titanic. His, he, he worked with the senior uh, telegrapher Jack Phillips. Uh, he joined Macar uh, Mar the Marconi Company only in just July of the previous year. Um, and, you know, uh, two things happen with him. He becomes a protagonist. The story he told in the New York Times, you, you, you find it cited in works uh, for, uh, over the last century. 
but he was also kind of cited, uh, cited as a hero because uh, uh, of his work on the Titanic and then later his work while he was injured on the Carpathian, the rescue ship. Uh, so he was both a protagonist and a hero. Um, and and uh, part of that story was that he, he and Jack, uh, Phillips stayed in the telegraph office until uh, the very end and then went overboard and he, him and Phillips uh, along and 20 other survivors were clinging to an overturned boat and their bodies were half in the water and uh, even after they were rescued Phillips died um, and bride was injured uh, he sprained Sprain, a severe sprained ankle on, on one leg and one foot and frostbite on the other. And um, when he got aboard the Carpathian and he, he recovered a bit, he went into the t- telegraphy office and, and helped out um, Harold Cottom, who is the Carpathia's telegrapher, uh, to start sending messages back to the United States. Oh, actually, both, both ways. Uh, with messages from the survivors, which is what they were ordered to do. And they had a stack of 600 to 700 messages they they had to send uh, over the wireless. And in fact, even after the ship had pulled into the dock in New York City, uh, the reporter had to hunt him down and find him because he was still in the office uh, sending messages from the port uh, to, to survivors' families and friends. Uh, and so he became the center focus of all of all of those hearings, dealing with the journalism part uh, of the story. And in fact, he was when he went into the hearing room to testify, he was had to be carried in with t- with his two um, uh, two feet bandaged and and then sit in a chair. He couldn't stand up. Yeah, and we're definitely going to come back to those hearings in a minute. Yes. Uh, let's uh, let's talk a little bit about. You know, being on the ship with no concrete news from the ship coming in immediately and Titanic survivors still en route to New York, now in the Carpathia, you wrote about crowds of people forming outside the White Star Line office in New York, begging for news and getting none. And as a result, conspiracy theories started to form with one rumor that J.P. Morgan didn't want any news out until after the stock market had closed. And ironically, the New York Times, who we're going to get into more here, uh, ran a headline that stated four days of terrible suspense breed wild rumors. And at the exact same time, accusations arose that Bride and the Carpe a wireless operator were purposely holding back news so they could cash in by selling their stories. So we, before we get into that specific incident, give us a little context of how common was checkbook journalism at this time. Well, you know, this is one of the things that intrigues me about this, this story, because, because um, uh, in the early 20th century, late 19th century, it was an accepted practice. You could find this cited in journalism textbooks of the time. In fact, Frederick Hudson, the former managing editor of the New York Herald, said it was a common practice among journalists to pay for stories. I sort of wonder uh, how how things change from then to now, right? Uh, how, how did how did how did this new ethos about uh, um, uh, it, it is wrong for journalists to pay for stories? Where did that all come from, and whatnot? That's something that would be difficult to explore, I think. Uh, but I, but I would I would say that the uh, the the hearings and the discussion and the controversy and the and the, the many stories about this issue that appeared in the early 20th century is sort of a, a, a the uh, the start 
of a reconsideration of all this. One thing interesting about this whole this whole issue about checkbook journalism in relation to Marconi and the New York Times is that in 1909, a man, a telegrapher, a wireless operator named Jack Benz became internationally famous. He was on the White Star Liner Republic, which crashed into a cargo ship down, uh, I think it was down by Florida. And his messages across the wireless saved hundreds of lives. And when he got back to the States, he sold his story to New York Times, which made him even more famous. And uh, w- one of the things he said in public was that uh, he sold it to the New York Times because, because he got a message from the Marconi company to, re- quote, reserve the story, unquote, for the New York Times because of Marconi and his company's friendly connection with the New York Times. Uh, and so there's uh, an example that reveals that it, it, it was a fairly common practice and, and, and it also was a harbinger of what happened uh, three years later. Yeah, so let's talk about that. So did the wireless operators indeed sell their Titanic stories to the New York Times? And if so, tell us the story about how that was arranged. Well, uh, yes, they did. And how it was re- arranged was, of course, the controversy. And I don't think, even in all the research I did into this, I don't, I don't know whether we... We know for sure, right? It, it, it's so confusing. A lot of allegations public, uh, published as fact back then uh, and, and uh, charging Marconi with, with uh, restricting his, his telegraphers from giving away the news and whatnot. I, I think what we can say is that, yes, Marconi arranged to allow them to sell their stories if they wanted to, okay? One of the questions was, uh, okay, so they're out at sea, and why are they not sending stories about the disaster and how the wreck happened and how it sank and whatnot like that? And the the excuse was, and I, and I think it's a legitimate excuse, uh, they had all these survivors on board the Carpathia, and they they handed out wireless forms from the fill-out messages to send to their families back home. And so they had a stack of six or 700 of these messages in the office, and they were um, busy sending all of those messages. And, and, and more than one time, both uh, Harold Bride and, and Harold, uh, Harold Cottom, when they testified and when they talked about it, would say that they, they had too much work to do to, to, uh, to send messages about the record, you know, what, what all happened. Uh, they were they were notifying people that these people survived and whatnot. Um, the 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 other thing is, and this is this shows up in the testimony later by Marconi and and uh, and, and in editorials and stories by the New York Times, that the Marconi wireless operators were one not allowed to act as reporters. They were this, they were told that that was that was company policy. The other thing is that British law at the time did not allow them to pass on news. That's not that that was not their function, and they were not allowed to do that. Okay. So um, the other question was then, how did anything get communicated to them about the fact that Marconi was trying to set this up for the New York Times, and? Uh, the allegations were that the messages were going back and forth while the ship was at sea. And 
Marconi and others uh, testified for the company, and, and the New York Times also says that they re- they did not send that message until the 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 the, the uh, Carpathian was approaching New York City and about ready to dock. So uh, that was and that was a dispute that was going on. Uh, it shows up in the hearings in Congress, but it also shows up in the news. At the time, people complaining that the story is being held back, and the New York Times is is trying to uh, uh, reserve it for themselves. And so that's that. You know, that's a question that's never, as uh, far as I can tell, has never be- definitively been answered. I, I I suppose one could go, if possible, into the archives of the Marconi Company and and to the New York Times if you could get into them and actually explore the messages that went back and forth, and maybe you could discern that. Um, but but that's still something that's left left in, in a kind of fog of mystery. Yeah, so let's go back to what you were talking about earlier with this inquiry. Uh, with so much chaos in, in the uproar over holding back public information for checkbook journalism, Republican Senator William Eldon Smith of Michigan quickly became chairman of a committee to investigate the Titanic disaster. An interesting fact to mention for our journalism history uh, listeners here is that Smith himself was a newspaper man, the owner of the Grand Rapids Herald. He was so bent on getting the truth out of what what happened that he was one of the first ones uh, to board the Carpathia when it docked in New York. And by uh, by April 19th, just four days after the Titanic sank, the Senate inquiry began. Even Marconi himself, with the Marconi Wireless Telegraph Company, was made to testify. So is there anything else interesting about Marconi's testimony that you wanted to let us know? It started just four days after um, the the uh, the, st- the story goes from some some witnesses that, that Smith heard about this, and he um, actually wrote wrote down the uh, uh, request to create this committee on the back of an envelope and handed it in, and they approved it. Now, one of the reasons that he went to New York was, uh, uh, which is make an exciting movie. Uh, he had heard. That uh, some of the the, the uh, White Star officials that had survived and were on board, and uh, and other other survivors, uh, the crew and whatnot, were were getting ready to leave and go back to Britain, and so he he sort of rushed up there with his committee and uh, and corralled them before they could leave, and forced them to testify uh, here in the states. Uh, I think the report would have been quite different if 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 uh, if he hadn't done that. Um, they actually uh, took out a um, uh, they took over some. I think it was the Waldorf Astoria or someplace, some big room in that hotel, and 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 held held a meeting for a few days before they moved it all back down to D.C. So uh, and and during that inquiry, they talked to 82 survivors and marine experts and uh, and and finally issued a 1,100 page report. Now, the thing before I talk about Marconi for a second is uh, we should note too that the the focus of the hearing was the cause of the of the disaster, and 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 that the the Times reporting and how they reported that story and whether they did anything nefarious to gather that information uh, was sort of a footnote of the story. 
But it became a bigger issue because the papers were publishing it all over the place, especially uh, in the New York and on the East Coast. And so uh, it, it becomes a bigger story than it really was in the confines uh, of the hearing. Though uh, uh, Alden Smith uh, kept pounding away at it to the point that some of his some of the committee members were about ready to revolt over it because it was, you're just basically going off on inconsequential stuff, and we need to focus on on the actual charge for uh, finding the finding the cause of the crash. In the uh, in the te- in the testimony that he gave, Marconi denied knowing anything about holding back messages. Uh, he, he talked about the fact that what they did sell was their personal uh, experiences and nothing about the wreck. Uh, and, and so essentially that same defense over and over again. Um, I think one of the issues about the whole hearing that, that I find intriguing and why I, I, I looked into it and wrote the paper was that uh, it, it, it deals with these these early formations of of a news ethic, of social responsibility, of the of the, the press and and the public interest. All of this is coalescing here, and this is kind of a critical juncture in the early twentieth century. Keep in mind, there at the time, there was no nationwide code of ethics for for the profession of journalism. None at all. There were there were various state ones and local ones, but there was no there was no nationwide one. Not until 1923, when the ASNE uh, uh, enacted the uh, canons of journalism, and the heart of the canons of the journalism is about social responsibility and the need to serve the public interest and not the private interests. And we hear all of this going on within within the hearings dealing with Marconi and the New York Times. Ironically, on April 19th, the day the inquiry started, the New York Times ran Bride's first-hand account, uh, which is still easily findable in historical archives. And it's a really fascinating piece of writing. But what's relevant to our discussion today uh, is his insistence in the original piece that, as you said, he needed to send out those personal telegram messages to survivors rather than send out news to the public. Um, so let's talk about the New York Times itself, uh, which was being accused of suppressing public interest news for profit. How did the New York Times respond to this? So essentially, Smith is saying that the disaster information, uh, and this is a quote from him, belongs to the public and it is its right to have it without delay. OK, so you hear those whole ideas about the public interest informing that uh, assertion, but it, the information belongs to the public, and it's and it has a right to have it without delay. Okay, and that was a, the corner of it. I, but if you stand back and look at the whole story, it seems like that's fine to say that. But if you believe Bride and Cottam and Marconi and and the New York Times, they weren't they weren't allowed to send out that information, even if they had it, uh, and. Uh, uh, and they um, they made no deals to do so. So and, and, anyway, it's um, so anyway. But in 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 defense, and this is something New York Times insisted on, also, that they never they insisted, um, both in, in their editorials and their stories and and in, and testimony, they never asked to reserve the story until the ship was about to dock. All right, and and again, they they. 
They pointed to the fact that Marconi forbid telegraphers from reporting news. And they also pointed to the fact that what Marconi noted was that British law made it illegal for them to do so anyway. And that they sold accounts of their experiences, not the story of the wreck. Okay, so that's essentially their 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 defense. I mean, uh, it, okay, so they get they they arrive at the uh, at, at the dock in, in New York, and where and where several news, newspapers had taken over a hotel and created a huge newsroom, and they went and grabbed these two telegraphers who had. Uh, somehow been communicated that they could sell their stories for four figures, and and, and they wrote the story. And yes, they had uh, rights to the story after paying for it. And so, does that limit the news spread? Well, it was in the New York Times, and it was re- and the story was repeated in papers across the country. So, I guess the public got the story. Um, uh, but they insist they never contacted the Carpathian uh, uh, until it docked, and. Uh, and and one of the other defenses they made in their editorials and stories was that the criticism and the rumors and the false allegations were made, being made by newspapers envious of of of, of the work they were doing, uh, and they 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 insisted the allegations in the inquiry were based on those rumors and false allegations. So what do you think journalists today should take away from the aftermath of news coverage of the Titanic? Well, first of all, there's the seeds of the notion of press responsibility to society, okay? Uh, and let's keep in mind, and I've written about this in other places before, and, uh, is in the fact that this is early 20th century. The partisan press reigned in the 19th century, but incrementally was falling away. And by the early 20th century, it was pretty much... Uh, uh, marginalized, though it still existed. Um, but now it was the commercialized press, and the New York Times is a very good example of that. Uh, so in the partisan press, reporters, journalists, they knew who they served. They served the political party that paid for their paper. But in the commercialized press, whom did they serve, Right. And that's a question that gets batted around in the early 20s, first couple centuries, uh, decades of the early 20th century. And, and finally, you see it culminated in the canons of journalism in 1923, that they serve the public, not private interests. And, uh, and so the seeds of that notion, I think, began there. And those, that, that notion still has resonance today, especially in this I, you know, this, this, this world we live in now with media, uh, uh, notice I use the word media, not journalism, so much of this media that people define as journalism, but from my point of view, it's not. Um, but in this, all these digital formats, where, where is the public interest, right? Uh, so I think it still has resonance today to think about these things. Um, in, in effect, uh, one, one of the lessons, too, is about the role of that commercialized press, which is what we mostly live with today, versus the market and uh, market opposed to the mission of journalism. And what, what is the mission of journalism? Uh, to serve the public interest, but we're constantly battling with the market forces of, of any publication, newspaper, or online site, or whatever. Um, 
Also, one of, one of the lessons is an early rethinking of the practice of paying for news. Uh, one of the things I often say uh, say uh, to my students is, um, where do where 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 do all these um, uh, ethical constraints come from? that say we can do this and we cannot do that. Um, and uh, you kind of see an early thinking, rethinking about that. All right. Well, we have had two fantastic guests on our show today. Ron, thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks for tuning in and be sure to follow us on Twitter at jhistoryjournal. If you like our podcast, leave us a rating and a review wherever you listen to podcasts. Until next time, I'm your host, Terry Finneman, signing off with the words of Edward R. Murrow. Good night and good luck.